listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a former Marine with an incredible story where he was set up to take the fall for war crimes in Afghanistan that he didn't commit. It's just an unreal tale and the book about it. We'll get to that coming up in just a moment. First, our normal set of announcements. Make sure you follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. As well, uh, please continue with our Amazon promotion. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend. We'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations featured here on the show. And it also works from your smartphone as well. Direct redirection rate to the app. Credit card information saved. Very useful. Very easy. And, of course, continue to leave us Apple five-star reviews. Uh, helps grow the show. Love to hear from you guys. Subscribe to the YouTube channel as well. You can watch all the episodes there. So a lot of ways for you guys to consume the hazard ground. All right, on to this week's guest. Spent over 26 years in the United States Marine Corps. Ten and a half of that inside special operations. He's got ten total deployments and also commanded FAST, the fleet anti-security team, uh, and was in Benghazi right after the fall of Benghazi back in 2012. But his story today is about his unit in Afghanistan that was ambushed and then was accused of killing Afghan civilians. It went through one of the highest courts, one of the biggest trials in all of American military history. He was eventually exonerated, but still ran into more problems with the Marine Corps going forward. His story here to detail that in a book called A Few Bad Men, Major Fred Galvin retired, joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Fred, welcome and thank you so much for being here. It's great to be here, Mark. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, amazing career. Uh, and full disclosure to the audience, saw you on LinkedIn, read your profile. I'm like, that's a dude I want to talk to. Not only because of your Marine career and everything you did, but, um, you know, again, I, I joked at the top about, you know, working for Tesla, but it's got to be pretty incredible um, to go from the Marines to a company like that, you know, and have that as uh, your, your nine to five, so to speak. Yes, very uh, humbled to be with a company like Tesla and uh, the leaders that I have were very, very aggressive, just like in the Marine Corps. So it's a, it's a great organization with great mission and uh, loved working there. That's for sure. Go back to the beginning for me. How and why did you get in the Marine Corps? Okay, so when I was about a 10-year-old boy, our family took a trip to uh, the Middle East, to the East Coast battlefields of uh, America, the Revolutionary and Civil Wars. And... Hearing uh, the tales spoken to us by park rangers, that was, to me, one of the most profound experiences I had in my life at that time. So at that time, I didn't know anything about the military. We didn't live around any military bases. We didn't have anybody in our family in the military. But I knew that's what I wanted to do is to serve. And then um, it was later on in high school, one of the the fellow students, uh, he he mentioned Oh, if you want to go into the military, you got to join the Marines because they're the first to fight. So that uh, really gained my attention and made me want to join the Marines, which I did uh, right after graduating high school. Uh, and seven, 17 years old, week after high school, I was in boot camp. So uh, dream came true for me. 
did you were you the kind of guy who did a lot of reading or you sort of went into it blind? Did you try to do your research about what the Marines were about and what boot camp was like and everything else? Or were you just sort of walked into it knowing I'm going to be a Marine and that's good enough for me? You know, I, I didn't do any uh, reading other than listening to this peer and he uh, quickly, you know, connected me with the recruiter and the recruiter uh, kind of sold me exactly what I wanted to hear. You know, everything about the Marines was, uh, you know, close knit organization, first to fight. Uh, I, I was sold out. It was a student athlete in high school. So, you know, this organization, this, this recruiter, um, he was an all American uh, football player when he was in high school and uh, he was an infantry Marine. So he was a big, huge guy. Um, that's, that's what I picture in the Marines. So I was, didn't, he had his work totally cut out for him <laughs> with me. When, uh, when you get to boot camp, are you shocked at sort of, uh, is it difficult for you? Are you surprised to see what the whole thing is about? Actually, uh, not to make any negative statement against the Marine Corps, but it was just what I wanted. Um, having been an athlete playing football and track, uh, very competitively, I, I enjoyed boot camp. Thought it was uh, not the most physically challenging, but there was in you know the little mining games. For some people, I think they're battling homesickness. I don't know if they fully knew what they were getting into. Um, you know, some of what they're doing there, it's I found funny. You know, like they're they're playing some games and the drill instructors really, uh, you know, they're not going to kill you. Uh, so it was to me, it was very enjoyable. Later on throughout my career, you get into uh, special operations, force reconnaissance, and in Marine Special Operations, that training was actually uh, much more challenging mentally and physically than anything I had uh, previously done uh, at earlier stages of my career. So this is the late 80s when you sign up. Um, and, you know, without fast-forwarding too much, you know, uh, the Gulf War comes around in the early 90s. Um, did you miss that whole experience? No, I didn't. Okay. Um, I deployed. I was about 20 years old, deployed with the regimental landing team five. It's a, that's a Marine air ground task force that, uh, you know, we deployed out of Camp Pendleton, California and, uh, went to, um, offloaded in Saudi Arabia, Jabal Ali, and then went into Kuwait, um, had limited combat there in al Kafji and Al-Wafra. And then, uh, as you know, the war was over very quickly. And, you know, a lot of people make light of what that combat operation was all about, but uh, it literally was the last uh, where from beginning to end, it was a successful operation. Uh, yeah. I would submit what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan was very successful uh, all the way up until 2005. And then when um, in May of 2006, we had uh, the Afghan president, uh, Hamid Karzai, meet in the White House with uh, President Bush. And they decided to uh, have a plan to develop uh, a democratic state inside Afghanistan. And then that's when uh, General Pet Generals Petraeus and Mattis pinned the counterinsurgency strategy and from that point on and there was a decline uh it is what it is there was 
assessments going on. Yeah. Statistics were skewed and uh, comments were made by many general officers to Congress, which uh, the facts were very distorted. And that's unfortunately was the beginning and the end before that, uh, what was happening in Afghanistan was extremely successful. Uh, those frontline foot soldiers were doing their jobs, uh, winning the war, dropping bombs. The Taliban was in retreat. And then after that, this, uh, even the counterinsurgency strategy, they hijacked this phrase from the Hippocratic oath of first do no harm. Uh, tell me that doesn't send mixed signals to uh, yeah. those front we're, we're in combat, but please do no harm for crying out loud. Uh, yeah, because that, that makes a whole lot of sense. Yes. So, but hey, we got the good. we got the fancy term "coin" out of it, as in counterinsurgency. So you know, I mean that 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 got somebody an award somewhere uh, high up in the Pentagon for coming up with that phrase. Uh, different yes. conversation, though. Let me ask you: going back to your experience in the Gulf, you know, you had this romantic. Um, notion of what the Marines are like and, and serving and being in combat and everything else during the first Gulf War. Did, did any of that sort of fall short or did it meet your expectations or did, did you fulfill sort of this, hey, I've reached the pinnacle sort of deal of what I wanted to do? That's a very interesting conversation. Um, mixed emotions. Uh, for me, it, it led me as a very young Marine. I was a corporal. I thought we were trained, but we are not as well-trained as we could have and should have been. Uh, I kind of made a commitment to myself at that time that if I was ever a leader in the Marines, I would make sure that the troops I was in uh, charge of were as well-trained as they could possibly be. Um, And that led me, you know, afterwards, I uh, went out, uh, went to college there in California, just south of the base, Cal State, San Marcos. Then, um, Worked as a stockbroker at Smith Barney for two years and re-entered the Marine Corps as a commissioned officer. Um, Started out in the infantry, then went over to force reconnaissance. And that whole experience as a leader, first in the infantry, then then force reconnaissance and special operations, allowed me to be able to train the Marines to the best of my ability. Um, And very, it was very entrepreneurial. You had a lot of leeway to train your Marines as you saw fit for the mission that you were going to do. So um, really, really did enjoy that. Um, so, but um, Desert Storm, you know, was a time when not only the military was united and cohesive, um, but the American people were, and that's how it started off right after nine 11. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I would say right now, especially after the events of last year, uh, right before 9-11 and our withdrawal from Afghanistan and how that was botched. Executed. Yes. <laughs> you can say it. I've said it a million times. I'm still in uniform. I don't think anybody's going to argue. So yeah, that's, it, 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 that it, was, uh, it was a show. <laughs> you know, when uh, Afghans are dangling from an Air Force C-17 and um, that has consequences. We've seen what's happened since then with, uh, the Russian army invading Ukraine. You see 31 ballistic missile launches just this calendar year from North Korea. You see larger scale and larger frequent, more frequent uh, amphibious operations off of the east coast of China by the People's Liberation Army and People's Liberation Army Navy. You Last month, this exercise, uh, Sniper Frontier, 
uh, you know, just 1,700 miles off the Florida coast in the Caribbean Sea. You know, let's let's not remember the Monroe Doctrine, but uh, we have this activity sponsored, hosted by President Maduro of Venezuela, who invited 13 countries to include Russia, Iran, China, right here in our front yard. So uh, those are the consequences when we're perceived militarily as weak as our adversaries look at us. Uh, it has consequences. Yeah, the Monroe Doctrine, uh, the world's worst HOA. Uh, now that you look at it, uh, at least nobody's paying attention to it, right? So different conversation again. Uh, I, I'm curious about that sort of seminal leadership moment for you where, you know, you felt, as you mentioned before, you weren't being trained the way you were and you decided, hey, now I'm going to flip the script instead of being the lead. I want to be the leader. Um, in in that moment and in, in going through all that, you know, w- when you look back on it, um, did you sort of meet your own objectives for what you wanted to do? Because always that's, you know, you get this moment where the, the, the switch goes on or the light goes on for you and you're like, hey, you know, now I want to be the one who's calling the shots and, and uh, be able to sort of affect things in a different manner. Uh, and then you go back and grade yourself on that, so to speak. So uh, d- did you feel like you were able to sort of be the leader you wanted to become? Very much so. Uh, that's one thing the Marine Corps does very well is it trains its infantry officers uh, and small unit leaders. Uh, but uh, as a lieutenant, you're, you're given the, the unit that I was in, at a company commander, he did uh, allow us to have a lot of time on our schedule to go out and conduct a lot of field training. And our battalion commander encouraged the same thing. They actually demanded that you spend no less than 10 days out of the month in the field, not just going to the field, but in the field. And um, that type of leadership, uh, they were very inspirational. Uh, they they did what they could during the end of the Clinton years when there was uh, severe cutbacks in the military. We were doing a lot of uh, blank fire training because ammunition, you know, the Marine Corps does not have these uh, massive programs to the same extent as the United States Air Force or the Navy. Uh, but uh, what we do have was was cut, and uh, but we were allowed to at least go out in the field and do a lot of maneuver, which uh, which was very good for myself in the developing the Marines that I was in charge of. So uh, later on, I think that had a lot of success later on with different administrations um, and being in force reconnaissance. I did a tour there as a platoon commander overseas for three years before uh, instructor duty at the Marine Corps version of Top Gun out in Yuma, Arizona, which to me was was great because they did provide a lot of uh, resources to, to to train Marines, both air and ground. I was the guy on the ground, deconflicting and controlling fires uh, for aviation and surface fires uh, out there in these very large, complex exercises with uh, many joint aviation platforms from all the different joint services, which uh, that was instrumental in preparing me for what would come later on in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. So uh, what I had wanted with, as far as training, I did get it in spades. Uh, it just happened a little bit later in my career. And sure. uh, I'm very thankful that uh, I was a- able to have uh, those types of opportunities, uh, which a lot of people, is very, very few numbers of uh, infantry officers are allowed to go and uh, be an instructor, very selective out there in uh, 
the Marines Aviation Weapons and Taxis Instructor Squadron. Are you in special operations by the time 9-11 rolls around? So I had been a force recon platoon commander okay. all the way up until 2000, the summer of 2001. And that was, a. Uh, so the Marine Corps was not, they did not have any active component in the special operations command. That's kind of an interesting uh, bit of history that the Marine Corps, everybody says, oh, you guys were late to the start. Well, we, before the Marine before the Special Operations Command even existed, we uh, you did have the Marine Raiders in World War II, which uh, the Marines did not want. Uh, they started in 1942, last until 1944, while the war was still going on, and these Raiders were still fighting in the South Pacific. The Commandant of the Marine Corps said it is not in the best interest of the Marine Corps to have an elite with an elite, and General Vandergrift signed uh, disbanding the Marine Raiders. So, uh, that's one data point. The second, uh, as you mentioned with this 2001 timeframe. So if you roll it back even further to 1987, when they stood up the special operations command in the United States, uh, all of the army green Berets, Rangers, air force, special operations, Navy seals, yeah. uh, were also drawn into it. The Marine Corps said, Hey, you know, if I'm going to pay for this beer, I'm going to uh, I'm going to drink it here. <laughs> and the last thing the Marine Corps wanted was to man, train, and equip elite units, and not be able to employ them and have them employed by the Navy or the Army or another Joint Force commander. So, uh, smart business uh, proposal. However, to answer your question in a long-winded way, you know the Marine Corps was like, no, we we still believe, like in World War II, it's not in the best interest to have elite within elite. We are a small unit. We don't have a lot of money. And if we yeah. have these elite units and we have to pay for them because of Title 10, they have to fund them by the service, we are not going to uh, have them work for another commander. So it wasn't until after 9-11 that Dr. Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense on his second time as Secretary of Defense, he was, a, as you know, a naval officer. He was Secretary of Defense right at the end of the Vietnam War. And he, uh, very smart man, he understood how effective the Green Berets, Navy SEALs, these elite units were. So he uh, directed that all the services increase their capacity for special operations. He even told that to the Marines. The Marines slow rolled with this proof of concept called Marine Corps Special Operations Command Detachment 1. The Marines are into these big, long acronyms that make it sound like it's another item on the McDonald's menu. So exactly. This, yeah. MC SOCOM debt one. Uh, they did a proof of concept. It was supposed to be for two years. They deployed with SEALs to Afghanistan, did great work. And then they, they came back, extended it for a year, uh, slow rolling Donald Rumsfeld's effort to have a Marine component activated. Uh, I'm sure some in the Marine Corps and senior leadership positions thought that Bush 43 would be a one-term president like his father. That did not occur. He was reelected. And uh, soon thereafter, in 2005, the uh, Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, ordered the Marine Corps, thou shall create a Special Operations Command. So in, and when that happened in 2006, um, I was still in Force Recon there on the West Coast as a platoon commander. Uh, we had been doing multiple deployments in Force Recon with the Marine Corps in support of the Marine Corps' uh, combat efforts in Western Iraq. And then uh, they activated 
the Special Operations Command for the Marines. I went, I was pulled from the West Coast in Camp Pendleton to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, where I, um, I served there as the first Marine Special Operations uh, Company commanding officer. And we deployed as a task force on the USS Baton uh, for the year prior to that. We didn't know where we were going to go. It was back and forth, Iraq, Afghanistan, maybe even the yeah. Horn of Africa. Got on the ship uh, a week afterwards after getting on the ship. They uh, told us we were going to go to Afghanistan, which if you recall in 2006, there was a uh, full page ads taken out in the New York Times, hit ads going into a presidential general election saying general betray us. So there's this surge going on in Iraq that was very unpopular in America. A lot of Americans were being wounded and killed. Um, so we thought because the Marines had pulled all of their forces out of Afghanistan and sent every last Marine into Iraq. And that's what, what that was the U S military's focus of effort. So yeah. we thought we were going to go there, um, did most of our training for uh, combat operations in Iraq. And then also all of a sudden we pivoted and went into uh, Afghanistan. Right. So we got off the ship in Djibouti, in the Horn of Africa, flew in, uh, landed. They put us in a location that the French special operations had just uh, withdrawn from in the eastern portion of Afghanistan in Jalalabad. Very uh, politically sensitive area. Uh, you have people that uh, in that town versus many other parts of Afghanistan were educated. And that was a passage point, uh, as, as you know, <clears throat> and many of your listeners, we were not allowed to go into uh, Pakistan. So what you had going on at that time was enemy quickly realized that that became a training sanctuary and no longer did the Taliban need to summit, you know, the 14,000 foot uh, snow covered mountains at least when we were when we arrived in February, uh, they were snow covered. Uh, because America, we built the first paved road in Afghanistan that connected the capitals between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So uh, that served many purposes for the Taliban, and uh, not just the average Afghan, but the Taliban could export poppy and opium very quickly out of Afghanistan to fund and fuel the war. And this training sanctuary that was just on the other side of the border was uh, very accessible now by road so they could import foreign fighters. And the first village on the Afghanistan side is a town called Badi Ko. And uh, let's just think if you were like what I do in Tesla, you're in distribution. Consider this uh, akin to what Amazon calls a fulfillment center. This is a big logistics or distribution node where uh, product like suicide bombers and jihadists link up with their handlers for that final mile service uh, to get their jihad on in Kandahar, Kabul, Sangin, Herat, you name it. Uh, so we entered this village on the 4th of March in 2007. It was actually our 30th mission. And uh, when we entered that village, that morning, we could tell the baseline had changed from just three hours prior, where it was a normal pattern of life, hustle and bustle with men, women, children, the market bazaar. And we knew this, uh, that when there is a mass exodus of women and children, uh, that's that sends signals to your brain. Something is about ready to happen. 
and it definitely did. So uh, we saw everybody lining up on both sides of the road. These were only fighting age men. Um, and then also we, that sent triggers in us. Okay. Something's about ready to happen. I announced that over the radio. Then we got hit with a car bomb. Uh, it was a van filled with fuel and mortar rounds that, uh, produced shrapnel that blasted three dimensionally. This is the largest, uh, suicide explosive device that I had ever seen. Uh, it went off right on the front of our patrol. We immediately stopped, uh, got into our formation. Uh, Marines are taught, um, you know, how to react to combat. So we did a counterattack. Uh, the first thing that hit us after that car bomb was a, a van on our left flank on the south side of the road. This uh, sports utility vehicle had three jihadists hanging out the windows, firing AK-47s fully automatic at the team that had just gotten hit. Um, luckily, the the gunner and the turret of that vehicle, he was knocked down. He was on fire. But he only had a shrapnel on his right bicep. He stood up, uh, manned his medium machine gun. He aimed in. That was a, a vehicle that we used as our ambulance because it had an open back container. Uh, so the... The good thing is nobody in that vehicle was killed uh, because it had an open back container. We had a young uh, Marine in the back. Also, he stood to his feet. He had a light machine gun. They both aimed in and shot at uh, those who were firing at us in that sports utility vehicle, killed them. The driver bailed out into a ditch where he later continued to fight against us with uh, his AK-47. He later testified us against us in the court uh, almost a year later. Uh, via video teleconference from an uh, American base in Afghanistan. Uh, he was paid uh, salacia payments by, you know, the local battle space commander uh, for those three jihadists that were killed. Uh, this was a known terrorist on terrorist list uh, that uh, the Army battle space commander s- stated that his task force intel officer vetted, uh, but not according to the Intel reports that uh, were produced for the court during the court. Uh, so either there, that was a bold-faced lie or uh, somebody didn't do the proper due diligence and uh, should be held accountable for that, especially since a senior Army officer paid uh, the average of four years' salary for an Afghan to a key terrorist, a known terrorist, for three other jihadists that were fighting at us. So we quickly killed them, as I said, Mark. Then we quickly turned our attention to the right side of the road on our north where we had dismounted jihadists in formation. So they were doing fire maneuvers. So one echelon would provide suppressive fire mm-hmm. while the other yeah. one bound towards us. This was in a dry riverbed. So, you know, many people said, well, you know, you probably fired it and there's some civilians killed. Uh, and I'm like, hey, hold on. This was at nine o'clock in the morning, not fog of war. I was on the patrol. I saw it with my own eyes. I made a sworn statement, as all 30 of us did. I made up, you know, a polygraph from the President of the American Polygraph Association. That was all given to the convening authority. So let me explain a little bit about what happened what didn't happen is that van, the suicide bomber detonated. That was the only bomb, that the only body that was evidence of a body that was found is the headless torso of that suicide bomber. Uh, but... The sports utility vehicle that was driving at us that had the jihadists shooting at us, uh, they didn't find any bodies in that vehicle. It was shot up. That was a picture that was taken by 
in New York Times and blasts all, out all over the international media. So a little bit about that. Um, that vehicle is driving down an unapproved trail uh, that there was nobody, you know, so it was coming to T-Bone, our uh, vehicle that just got hit. Uh, so the fields of fire were directly at that vehicle. It wasn't spraying right. sure. into this crowded market. The contact that we engaged in the dry riverbed on the north side of the road, that was exactly what I just mentioned. It was a dry riverbed uh, that was filled with jihadists. Uh, so, yes, there could have been people killed with the shrapnel from the car bomb. There could have been uh, civilians killed by the jihadists that were firing at the direction where we were at, where there was people lined up on the road. But they were not uh, civilians killed by those in our patrol firing at those uh, in this depression down in that dry riverbed. Uh, but we remained in that kill zone for a total of five minutes. Which is forever. <laughs> yeah, which is forever if you're getting in. We were receiving sniper fire from this uh, mountain that hit our vehicles that the U.S. Army's Criminal Investigative Division later did a uh, analysis on and found that the impacts were uh, assessed to be from a Soviet Dragunov sniper rifle because as crazy as it sounds, uh, the Special Operations Command Central, in charge of all the Special Operations Forces in the Middle East, they sent an Air Force colonel to be the investigating officer. And Mark, I know you would never likely be the subject matter expert called to investigate uh, an AC-130 or any Air Force uh, aircraft mishap. It's a total... It was a total wrong match, but that's what had happened. And this Air Force colonel, with a, his vast zero combat experience, assessed that the damage to our vehicles, those impacts, was either from the car bomb, even after the task force Paladin, which uh, task force Paladin does all these post-blast analysis. They were immediately on the scene. They examined our vehicles, and they assessed that the impacts from our vehicles were from a, you know, projectiles from direct fire weapons. Uh, so he, the Air Force Colonel Prahana, attempted uh, to go to the Sergeant First Class on multiple occasions and have him change his report. Uh, that Sergeant First Class testified to that in the court uh, in January 2008 that he was coerced multiple times, but he never changed his report. But he stated the Air Force Colonel wanted him to do that. Air Force Colonel stated that he opined with his great experience uh, that we either shot our vehicles before the patrol. We volunteered. I don't, Mark, you've been in the army. You've probably never heard of anybody doing pre-combat inspections and checks, trying to impact the armor of your own vehicles to. Uh, yeah, that, that's a know. great idea. Let me see if my armor works by firing at it before we get outside the wire. Yeah. Yes. I, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then his other oh, opinion was that, uh, during the patrol, we were spooked so that, you know, we were in column on this patrol, ducks in a row, vehicles right behind each other. So he was saying that the Marines on the patrol either shot at ourselves or that the the Marine in the back troop compartment in that vehicle uh, shot the sides of our own vehicle. So you used machine guns, and I don't know if you've ever heard of a technique that when you're in an ambush, if you just got blown up, that you would use a medium or light machine gun and reach out over the side of your vehicle, pulling the trigger um, and firing at the own, your own side of the vehicle. Instead of at nine o'clock in the morning where you clearly see what's going on, 
aiming in at any threats and being prepared to address those threats. So this, uh, this lunacy was further perpetuated where our, the convening authority or the, the air force investigator made his report. They turned it over to the, um, convene the convening authority, which was, uh, uh, major general Frank Kearney at that time, he turned it over to the Marine Corps and the yeah. Marine Corps didn't have the special operations, the MARSOC component be the convening authority. They turned it over to the conventional side, which the convening authority was then Lieutenant General Jim Mattis, who, uh, you know, that when I was relieved after they kicked us out of Afghanistan, we went to Kuwait, our commanding officer believed the reports of these Afghans who said that we were drunk, that we were, you, that's the first thing our commanding officer asked uh, my battalion commander was, is it true that you guys were drunk? So he believed not any of us who were his own Marines, who he had known for over a year as we were training and we reported to him, but the Afghan locals had said that the Marines were drunk, that we use, I don't know if you ever heard of this technique, Mark, it's, it's probably the stupidest thing you ever heard, but the Afghan locals, the tribal elders were saying that we use slingshots and hand grenades. So I've never heard this military tactic technique or procedure where why would you pull a pin out of a hand grenade and try to jerry it into a, a slingshot and fire it from a, a vehicle uh, at the Taliban? They said we were trying to make it look like there was an explosion, but that there was no explosion. Uh, so but our leaders wanted to believe this. And uh, unfortunately, and sadly, they did. They did believe it. Uh, so uh, this is uh, this is unfortunate. That was the beginning of the end. And, you know, we uh, that's when they dogpiled us. We were sent to uh, the back to the United States um, and they assigned 45 criminal investigators for prosecuting attorneys against us. And this turned into the, uh, you know, against seven of us, two of us, finally, myself and one other Marine Commission officer went in the courtroom, uh, turned into the longest trial uh, for a war crime during the entire Afghan war. Uh, they put a gag order against us. The Marine Corps doesn't call it a gag order. They call it a protective order that says we couldn't say anything to the media. Even our attorneys, if they did, they would be disbarred. Uh, I have a copy of that order here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this violates, as, as you know, Mark, when you and I took an oath, uh, we took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. The First Amendment of that is, um, you know, that we have free speech, having any form of censure being. Why would we, for our own protection, not want to say anything to the press? Right. You saw how a year ago the Marine Corps did this again by trying to suppress uh, and I know it's a totally different situation with the former Lieutenant Colonel Stu Scheller, but they don't want information getting out that makes the Marine Corps look bad. Right. Uh, they, they put that gag order against us and we complied with it. Um, and it had some negative consequences because when we went into the courtroom, as you know, uh, the military, when it's authorized, can conduct information operations. And information operation is an operation that distorts the truth. It's meant to change uh, the enemy's perspective and uh, to, to our advantage. So when we started this court case in January, 2008, uh, this unfortunately was 
and information operation where every defense witness, I mean, what I just described to you, Mark, was a gun battle. It was not Jason Bourne's knock list. It was not locations right. of submarines right. at sea. There's no reason to classify any of this. But not only were the defense witnesses that had exculpatory evidence, uh, all that testimony was in, uh, they'd go to classified sessions. So the media was escorted out of the courtroom, not in the lobby. They put them two buildings over. Uh, so they couldn't hear anything in not just with defense witnesses, but with character witnesses. People, these are Marine officers, senior Marine officers, uh, but they had never been to Afghanistan. So they had no uh, no classified information. They were just talking about my character. Mm-hmm. Again, the media was escorted out during their uh, testimony, which that type of information operation, one, it's unlawful. Uh, to have for three and a half weeks longest trial. This, this is not coincidental. You can't say that that happened when there's 45 witnesses and all of our defense witnesses, this ritual will go on again and again and again. So although the jury in the military, we call it a panel, uh, those, those jury members were able to see, hear, and understand and make a decision, which we were acquitted and exonerated, but the media does what the media does. And mm-hmm. when they get... Uh, information, although it may be limited, although it may be only one side, they're going to report just that. And that's what happened. So, um, yes, uh, we were kind of labeled with this black cloud. Right. And uh, it, although I went back to work, continued to serve for seven more years until I reached a service limitation, I wasn't able to get promoted because this, uh, they even they didn't use legal terms. Mark, you've uh, been in the military. You're in the military. You've been in military justice cases where, when your senior enlisted advisor uh, hands you the document when you're doing a military justice case, and there's three choices that you have to adjudicate that case. It's either the individual is innocent, they are guilty, or the case is dismissed. You don't use verbiage like you would in an after action for, uh, you know, some exercise by saying you acted appropriately. So those milly mouth words allowed the press to continue to perpetuate this false narrative that we had killed Afghan civilians and, uh, which was totally false. And, uh, but that label stuck. And right. So I was, uh, sent order to go to a board of inquiry, which, uh, they, they set, you know, within 30 days, I just got married. They immediately notified me via my attorney on my honeymoon. This is all in the book, A Few Bad Men. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they, again, continue with this type of psychological operations and information warfare to, to psych you out, saying, hey, you get back here immediately from your honeymoon. You have 30 days. You're going to this involuntary separation board. So the Marine Corps intended uh, to direct its fire directly at the leader's uh, holding us, they wanted to hold us accountable. This was embarrassing. The first time Marines had ever been kicked out of theater. Uh, so, um, yes, it was. Uh, it's very important that this type of uh, situation that occurred gets exposed, so the American public knows that our military is critical, especially at this time where we have resurgent forces uh, developing technology and building forces that are highly capable. Our U.S. military forces must be well-equipped, well-trained by competent commanders. And right now we have 
we have some issues with um, this case definitely showed uh, some weaknesses that uh, in our U.S. military, I mean, you read the book, A Few Bad Men, mm-hmm. and you it took me 11 years to fight to get uh, the Special Operations Command and the Marine Corps to declassify the information and release it to me. Uh, I'm talking the courtroom testimony. There's no reason to classify it. It has now been declassified. It's in the book. Uh, so when you read this and people are shocked, like, I had no idea. People that I even served with, that were in our Marine Special Operations Task Force, they had, they, their comments were, I didn't know all that. Uh, and that's, that's a shame. I was interviewed after the release of the book uh, by the former National Security Advisor, and he, he said, I didn't know this was going on. So this type of censorship did accomplish its purpose in keeping it from the American public, even senior leaders in the U.S. government. Uh, that's, that's illegal. That should not be going on. Um, when you're intending to cover something up, as you know from the security classification guide, it is uh, against regulations to uh, utilize security classification to save someone from embarrassment. Uh, we're not allowed to do something like that. And this is not the first time it has happened uh, where the truth was distorted, as you know, uh, by senior military yeah. leaders <laughs> in the Patrick Tillman case, uh, Army of course. Uh, yeah. Corporal in the U.S. Army Rangers. They created a false narrative and they sold it, unfortunately, to the American public who believed it for a while until, God bless her, uh, Mary Tillman, the mother of Patrick Tillman, had a. Uh, fought and after five investigations, the truth finally came out. So this has happened and it's currently happening right now in a similar, but, but a separate case involving three personnel from the Marine special operations command, the same command I was in. Uh, they had, uh, we were involved in an incident in Iraq 43 months ago, um, a retired army green beret contractor, 275 pound bodybuilder, uh, was, there in Iraq in Erbil and uh, took the two punches that hit a U.S. Marine gunnery sergeant in the face. He was coming in for an attempted third strike. And one Marine stepped in to defend his other Marine buddy. Uh, so one gunny came in, punched the retired Green Bray in the face one time. He fell backwards, hit his head. Um, they treated him medically instantly. There was no other punches, kicks, no weapons, no foul language. It was just that one punch. Uh, so there was a Navy special operation corpsman uh, that went to the same course that all Green Bray Corps medics and uh, SEAL corpsmen go to uh, uh, at there at Fort Bragg. He immediately treated him. They reported it. They brought him back to base. They medically evacuated him. He died a little bit less than four days later after this from uh, complications of asphyxiating on his vomit. Uh, the so what on all this is these all three men. Um, in the Marine Special Operations Command had been charged with homicide uh, to include the Marine that his his involvement was being punched in the face twice. Uh, homicide. To include the Navy corpsman who is, did his very best to treat, take care until he was properly relieved and you know, this former Green Bray who's surprisingly uh, also, at the time, he was a contractor for Lockheed Martin, the nation's largest defense contractor, which uh, our former secretary or former chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the Marine General Joe Dunford, works as a board member on. And so I know when people 
are when there's a death, there's investigations. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just believe this went too far. Mark, just think if you, your family or any listeners, viewers were the larger implication is if these Marines are convicted, we're surrendering our right of self-defense. If you're out with your family and somebody punches one of your children or your wife, do you not have the right to defend them? Marines are taught from boot camp that uh, we have this program called the Marine Corps Martial Arts Program. And these Marines not just utilize that as they were trained, they use the minimum amount of force. Uh, Marines are also taught in boot camp besides Marine Corps Martial Arts that Marines only destroy what's necessary. Uh, Whether you move on to become a sniper in the Marines or a breacher, we try to use the minimum amount of force to defeat the threat. And that's what they did. So these Marines were surrounded by not just this assaulter that attacked one of them, but seven of his buddies used the minimum amount of force. And they're all three being charged right now. This is a current case. You can look up MARSOC, M-A-R-S-O-C-3, and read about this. You can read about how the Marine Corps, less than a year ago in November, sent a colonel, that's the second highest rank for a, a judge advocate, a Marine lawyer, from the Pentagon down to Camp Lejeune, threatened eight of these Marine defense attorneys. Uh, they All defense attorneys, all eight of them, wrote sworn affidavits that this occurred. Um, just so happened to be one of the defense attorneys for these uh, special operators was among this party. And uh, so it compromised when you have a Marine colonel, a very senior ranking uh, lawyer come down there and says, these high profile cases, you will be protect. You can be protected by your fitness report, your annual evaluation, but you will not be shielded because when you go on to this promotion board, the senior Marine a lawyer that sits on that board, that colonel will know the cases you're working on and you will not be protected. So you're threatening someone's uh, career, their livelihood, the quality of life they can provide for their family for doing their job in defending someone in America. As you know, Mark and your listeners, we are a legal society based on laws. What it says under the apex of the Supreme Court, equal justice under law, we have laws that allow due process and the presumption of innocence. But when that is compromised by the unlawful command influence, which the Marine Corps, uh, I saw a a legal ruling yesterday that stated that uh, this was not unlawful command influence, that the colonel uh, didn't violate anything and the case is continuing to this day. So uh, you, in the Marine Corps, you can act like a thug, like in the mob, you can send a messenger. Somebody doesn't just, coincidentally drive five hours south of the Pentagon from the Pentagon's legal judge advocate division and make their way down to Camp Lejeune, North Carolina to threaten, verbally threaten uh, the careers of defense attorneys. Uh, that's, that's not coincidental. Marines who are commissioned officers and are lawyers at the rank of colonel are not stupid. They will take risks. <laughs> But they, that that Marine colonel knew what he was doing. That wasn't some accidental, oop, my bat. You know, uh, Just passing through, I figured I'd stop and say hello and threaten you. Yeah, threaten uh, a high-profile case. And, uh, you know, when the government has a weak case, and they also attempted the prosecution in this case, mm-hmm. just prior to that, to issue a gag order on them, uh, the judge in the case threw it out. The judge happened to be, at that time, he's been changed now, 
the judge was the defense attorney for the co-defendant in my case. So they, they did uh, try to use a lot of these strong arm tactics. What I'm describing is nonfiction, just like the case that I wrote about in my book, A Few Bad Men. This is not something that happened in Tehran or Pyongyang. This happened in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Right. This right. current case with these three other special operators from the same command, Marine Special Operations Command, is currently going on uh, at the same base in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, uh, where we formerly had not specifically that base, but we had witch hunt trials in American history. And uh, But we've moved past that in America, or have we? Yeah. Uh, so when your rights as a U.S. citizen or military member for the presumption of innocence to be disregarded, we have some severe problems and this needs to be addressed. Who do you feel let you down more, the Marine Corps, the military in general, or do you think just government and politics was what overrode all of this? That is a very, very good question. Uh, I do believe the Marine Corps, uh, you know, I had this Peter Pan moment. I loved, 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 loved the Marine Corps. And, uh, you know, certain things happened that, uh, you know, when I was a young, young Marine, everything I thought I saw was, was great. It was just what I wanted. You know, this organization has all these, uh, extremely strong morals. I thought this was just incredible. Um, but, uh, leaders compromise those morals and I, uh, was severely let down. Uh, this, this is occurring right now with, with these special operators. And when you have a problem like this, where morals and ethics are compromised by senior leaders and you don't intervene, um, it just like a criminal mind, I'm not some, uh, criminal justice major, but. Uh, people, it emboldens them. They think they can get away with it again. And this has happened uh, not just on this current case that's ongoing. It's happened in other cases. When you read the book, A Few Bad Men, you'll think this guy, Fred Galvin, is probably one of the dumbest guys that I know of because after he was exonerated, he went right back and asked orders to go overseas and he deployed to combat again. And, and then he stood up to his commanding officer who dropped a 500-pound bomb He wanted to, and he actually did go through with it, dropped a 500-pound bomb 34 meters away from his troops. I'm like, hey, we have other precision-guided munitions. We have a four-pound, four pounds of high explosive, uh, and this Griffin missile or this Hellfire missile has 10 pounds of high explosives. These are shape charges, so they use overpressure to detonate and kill the enemy. We can drop these much closer, um, but no, this, uh, I was his battalion operations officer, and not only, like I said, was I an instructor at the Marines version of Top Gun, but my duty there was to control aviation ordnance. So I'm the subject matter expert, not just only as a joint terminal attack controller, but as this Uber uh, fires guy uh, who had done this over 2,000 times with live ordnance. And um, now we have a commander with no experience in aviation ordnance making these calls. Uh, that jet took off, so thank God it did not release any more ordnance on our own guys, but don't worry that commanding officer then fired two surface fire rockets. These high Mars rockets, 675 pounds each. Again, our Marines were five times inside the acceptable fratricide distance. The reason I bring this up is, you know, his mind thinking that I can do whatever I want. Um, These. So he relieved me when I questioned him and said, we can't do this. He, he fired me. 
sent me home, but he also prohibited all of these Marines that were affected by this shockwave. That energy goes through the soft tissue in your brain. And uh, later, one of these Marines did hang himself, but he prohibited any of those Marines. There's a protocol for traumatic brain injury that if you're receiving an explosion like this, you have to sit out for 24 hours. You need to be assessed. Uh, even at the tactical level. But then when you return from that deployment, you need to be medically assessed for traumatic brain injury. But when a commander steps in and prohibits this, so in the military, we have policies, we have individuals when it comes to safety. So we have guardrails, we have guard dogs. And when those are taken out, when you disregard these policies, like for traumatic brain injury, and you disregard these policies and watchdogs. I I came back from that deployment and I sent a sworn statement along with a polygraph that I took to 88 members of the Senate and House Armed Services Committee, my two Kansas U.S. senators, my district congressman from Kansas, the inspector general for the command that I worked with, the three-star command, and uh after I did that on the 27th of November in 2011, I got this nice letter signed on Christmas day, which was a Sunday. And as you know, Mark, uh, three-star officers in the Marine Corps or the military, <laughs> you don't, you don't, uh, put a date on that letter unless it's the date that that general officer signs that letter. It is, it is reviewed. They have, uh, legal and administrative professionals that make sure everything's covered down. So I don't know, what else would compel a general officer in Northern Virginia, a uh, deputy commandant for the Marine Corps to go into his office on Sunday on Christmas day, <laughs> less than a month after I do use protected communication to these members of Congress, uh, which as you know, those letters get also carbon copied to the office of legislative affairs. So the service does yep. fully receive that communication, which I didn't know at the time. So, now I get this nice uh, Christmas present, this letter signed by a three-star. I'm still serving over in Okinawa, Japan, on the other side of the globe. You know, for me, it's the 26th of December. But I get this letter uh, signed by this general on the other side of the globe that I'm not in his direct chain of command, but uh, I was making some noise, and I get uh, ordered basically like the mob when a mobster gets uh, handed a bat. And uh, I, I know that three-star general didn't know me from Adam, but he was told get rid of this guy. So I went to another trial in Okinawa uh, called a board of inquiry. It's an involuntary separation board. Uh, they trumped up some charge that uh, this was for substandard performance. I went in there. The Marine Corps has these evaluations called fitness reports that you get each year. Uh, there's a block in there that says performance. And even though that in my time, pardon my technical terms, but I have pissed people off in the military but for performance, I've never been checked down that it, mm-hmm. any of my performance. Now they've checked Same. me down for judgment. <laughs> so, but when it comes to like the allegation of substandard performance, there was no evidence to support that. And so they dismissed that. And then I went on to uh, continue to serve as a, the commanding officer at first fleet anti-terrorism security team, uh, first fast out of Norfolk, Virginia, our air responsibility was European and African uh, theaters. Uh, a fast team is similar to like, it's essentially like a SWAT team for the Marine Corps. So sure. every American embassy has 
Marines, that permanent presence, you can look at that persistent presence as like a black and white beat cop on walking the street doing his law enforcement compared to a, uh, a SWAT team that goes out when something is in duress. And uh, one thing you said in your open, which I want to correct just slightly because it's not entirely uh, how things are. So I did not personally deploy. We deployed a platoon and it was actually the day after Benghazi fell. So that platoon right. provided uh, what our mission is to provide anti-terrorism uh, security operations for any vital national or naval asset, which they held the regional affairs office. And I know you know what that means, as well as American Embassy in Tripoli. They held those two buildings for 90 days uh, before uh, we turned those over to other U.S. forces. So, okay. mm-hmm. um, but uh, yes, I was then forced to retire in 2014 as I reached service limitations uh, after 26 years, 10 months and 19 days. And then I went on to uh, start a small business, ran that for five years, returned to work for federal government uh, for four years uh, with the interagency special operations command Pacific and the Marine Corps. And now I work for Tesla. I know, I know you're tight on time. I just wanted to ask you one more thing. You know, if a few bad apples spoil the bunch, Unfortunately for you, you seem to have run into several bad apples, at least in the senior positions and senior command along the way. Does that change your view of the Marine Corps itself, or is it just those individuals that you sort of, I don't know if harbor resentment's the right word, but you know, you still have some angst with? Yes, that's a really good question. So um, I still love the Marine Corps. I mean, obviously, I, as I just mentioned, I went back to serve four more years, uh, which I've just recently left four months ago. Um, the title of the book is not the bad Marine Corps. It's not the bad Pentagon or Department of Defense. It's a few bad men. And that's really what it is. And you look at this and you're like, well, there's more than just a few. And that's true. Uh, you know, one of the Marine Corps slogans, we're looking for a few good men. Uh, most people who are our age understand the movie that uh, was based on a true story, a few good men. But uh, there were more than just a few, uh, just like in the story with Julius Caesar it wasn't just Brutus that stabbed him in the back. It was all 69 senators. Right. Uh, and the moral of the story is this is a moral hazard that you have to deal with. You have to take immediate action. How do you do that? Um, I've on all these uh, podcasts and interviews that allow the time. I always mention to the listeners, I'm not asking for any money at all. I would, I, I think a lot of programs that do that, they're using it probably not how you want but I'm asking for five minutes of your time to look up congress.gov forward slash members, contact your member of Congress. Uh, if you want to figure out who to vote for, and if that member of Congress who you are represented by in the U S Senate and the house of representatives, if they don't give a constituent a any time of day by, especially with any action, I mean, there's few things that our constitution require that they provide for the wealth, the general welfare and the national defense. And if one of those few specified tasks in our constitution for our elected officials, if they don't give their constituents that put them in office the time of day, right before an election, I think, you know, who not to vote for, um, find someone who does care about our national defense and who will take action. And in these types of cases, especially with this ongoing case with MARSOC three, a self-defense case, if they will not, demand that a service chief comes into their office. I mean, these service chiefs, the, the military, they, we have elected officials, which are guard dogs. 
And it's not some of these people say, well, I'm not a member of the Senate or House Armed Services Committee. You don't have to be. We're not asking for uh, a session <coughs> to be held, but I would ask that these leaders be uh, answered the tough questions, not some carefully crafted letter made by their attorney to uh, to pacify. I'm talking a face to face meeting uh, with that uh, comment on the Marine Corps saying, what in the hell is going on in your command where a Marine who is attacked? I'm not talking about the guy that punched, but just the Marine who is attacked is charged with homicide. Yeah. I mean, are you out of your mind? The corpsman in the Marine Corps, I'm sure it's the same way as in the Army. You go after a medic or a corpsman, the doc that's there to save people's lives. That's that's one of the, the few things that, uh, you know, it's counter. It's counter to regular thought process, right? It's so yeah. it's so counter that it, it doesn't it, it doesn't add up, and I think that's that's part of the sort of uh, lack of justice in this case, or at least lack of obvious, you know, sort of ways to to deduce how things would normally go. There would have to be a lot of predetermined thought for a medic to go into a situation and go, "No, I'm going to let this individual die, um, right. or I'm going to aid in this individual dying," because it's counter to everything that they've learned. So. Uh, th- there is all that. Uh, I, look, I, I I know you have to run uh, because Elon, yes. Elon Musk calls, but I could talk to you for hours. Honestly, I I, I could. I, I, there's so much more here. I encourage you all to check out the book, A Few Bad Men. Uh, it's available wherever books are sold. Fred, I thank you so much uh, for just being open and honest with me and being willing to share your story. I'd love to have you back on and do this again sometime to get to some more finer details of this, but certainly appreciate your time. Fred Galvin, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Yes, thank you very much, sir. Have a great day. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.